Welcome to Black Diplomats, a foreign policy podcast about safety and security. I'm your host, Terrell Starr. Today, we're talking about the political crisis in Georgia. Here's a snapshot of what's happening right now. So the ruling party, Georgia Dream, won the parliamentary elections in October, but much of the country's opposition argued that the elections were rife with uh, elections violations and have refused to take their seats in parliament. Georgia Dream and the opposition have tried and failed over months to reach a resolution. And this week, the European Union has been in Tbilisi trying to broker a deal, but those talks ultimately fell through a few days ago. So um, here to help us understand what's going on is Sergei Kepanadze. From 2016 to 2020, Dr. Kapanadze was vice speaker of the Parliament of Georgia from the European Georgian Opposition Party. He's also a professor of peace studies, international relations, and European integration at the Ilya State University in Tbilisi, and the Jean Monet professor at the Caucasus University in Tbilisi. Before his career in politics, he served as a director of the think tank Georgia's Reforms Associates, also in Tbilisi. So, Sergey, welcome to the show. Hi, good to good, good, good to be there. You know, before we get into the politics of everything, Sergey, I'm really just curious about how you doing, man. This has been a stressful week. It's been a stress, stressful few months. It's been a stressful few months. I wouldn't say more than that, but uh, yeah, well, we're used to it. It's a uh, it's never calm here, so we always have this political active life here. But particularly from uh, from the November of the last year, it's been quite stressful because of the rigged elections, because of the ongoing crisis, um, economic crisis, healthcare related crisis, because of the COVID situation, and then in addition to that, a very heavy political crisis. And so, yeah, it's been quite turbulent here. I think about Georgia all the time because I was a Peace Corps volunteer there from 2003 to 2005. So I was there during the Rose Revolution. And I, I saw that and I go, I, 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 I try to go every year to Georgia and, you know, it's just interesting seeing how the country has these ups and these downs politically throughout the years. And now, you know, you, we're on enduring this uh, political crisis, but uh, please for, for our listeners, um, you know, we, we know that the European Union was in the Tbilisi all week negotiating uh, a compromise or trying to between Georgia Dream and the opposition, but those talks broke down. Can you just start off by explaining to us uh, what's going on in Georgia and why has the opposition refused to take their seats in parliament? Yeah, sure, because uh, we had uh, probably the worst elections in many years because of a numerous uh, because of numerous violations we had electoral fraud we had ballot stuffing we had carousels we had uh, violence uh, before the elections politically motivated cases uh, and and uh, all that uh, translated into the georgian dream getting just barely past the minimum that they needed to secure the majority in the parliament and in effect, the, uh, the, uh, even those votes that they wrote in the protocols, uh, they corrected over one third of the final protocol. That also shows the magnitude of, of the fraud. Even as a result of that, they didn't get uh, over 50%. They only got 48%. So majority of the population actually voted for the opposition. But uh, because of all that, they said that they won the elections and they're going to continue ruling. And the opposition said, uh, uh, 
because of all these facts that we're not going to take up the, the seats in the parliament and we're just going to continue uh, boycotting the parliament and, you know, uh, being in the streets or opposing the government for, uh, through all different uh, means. Now, what exasperated crisis after that was that uh, at a certain point uh, a few weeks ago, they actually stormed the uh, office of the major opposition party, United Nations mm-hmm. Movement. It's a different party from European Georgia. Uh, and they arrested one of the leaders of that party. Uh, and and um, uh, and by the way, this has been the practice throughout the years. Uh, the opposition leaders have been targeted, arrested. The free media leaders have also been uh, uh, targeted and arrested. There's been cases going on against the owners of uh, the opposition-minded media channels. And so after that, it became clear that the crisis has hit the new level. And that's when the European Union intervened. They... Uh, now, the president of the European Council, Charles Michel, was here uh, for the bilateral visit, and he uh, took up the role of the mediator in this crisis. And then afterwards, he sent uh, his special representative here, Ambassador Danielson, to negotiate the, this uh, standoff between the government and the opposition. Now, just to make it more clear, I think the, the, the big problem that we have here is the kind of you know, mode of governance which has emerged in Georgia in the last nine, ten years, which is that there is a one particular person, Mr. Uh, Ivanishvili, who is an oligarch who made his money in Russia. He is the founder and the and, and the, um, the owner of the Georgian League Party. He was the prime minister in 2013. Then he kind of left politics. And uh, he has introduced this kind of informal governance style where he does not hold any formal position. So he is not formally accountable to anybody, to the people, or to any institutions. And he has uh, the party which is basically representing him, but uh, nobody in the party is uh, able to call any shots or to make any decisions. It's all up to him. And so as a result of the informal governance, he basically subordinated all the institutions. Uh, Some pundits call it the state capture because the court is now under his control fully, uh, prosecutor's office is under his full control, uh, most of the media channels are under his full control, and so are all the other uh, institutions, legislative, executive, etc. And in Georgia, we have no power sharing. So this uh, winner-takes-all attitude is something that he has been propagating throughout the years, uh, uh, having the mindset where any concession is interpreted by him as a defeat. Uh, and that's why uh, these talks fail. You know, the subject of the talks had to do with uh, the new elections, or how to get to the new elections, we have been proposing to hold the plebiscite. We the most democratic way. You ask the people if they want the new elections or not. We were proposing to have the uh, politically motivated cases closed, uh, and they refused to do that also, and also to have the fundamental reform of the electoral system and of the judiciary so that this uh, um, uh, the current status quo, where the judiciary is fully subordinated to one person and the electoral administration is also fully supported, so that is dismantled. And on all of those counts, they said no, and that's why the talks failed. What do you say to the international observers who say that there were some a few issues, but the elections were largely fair? So their assessment seems to be inconsistent with what not only you are saying now, but what other opposition parties have told me and have also expressed to the public, why why you think it's such a discrepancy between what you're telling me versus what the international observers are saying? It's a very good question, but uh, there is a little uh, there is a little inaccuracy there. So uh, uh, we've had few international missions here. 
And, uh, well, first of all, those international missions were not uh, full-fledged missions because of COVID. But nonetheless, we had international missions and they wrote the reports. Now, it's a fact, none of those international observers wrote that the elections were free and fair. None of them. What they wrote was that elections were competitive. And we have no, we're not competitive means that we're not North Korea. There's no one party only campaigning in the election. It's not the Soviet Union. There is a fierce competition between the government and the opposition parties. And the opposition parties actually got more votes than the, than the government did. So we have no problem with that assessment that they were competitive. But nowhere was it said that they were free and fair. And just the fact, there is not a single observation report which said that. Now, observation reports also said that, uh, you know, the, the election day was peaceful. Yes, it was peaceful. We had only a few cases where, you know, for instance, the firearms were used. But yes, by and large, they were peaceful. Uh, peaceful. But the problem is that um, the kind of violations which have been also observed by these election observers are the ones which influence the final outcome. For instance, the ballot stuff. We have cases where uh, it is recorded on the video how a person is stuffing ballots in the ballot box. And then this case went to the court and the, and the judge, which obviously is subordinated to the ruler said that, well, yes, I see that somebody's putting something in the box, but I cannot verify that these are the bulletins. So what else can the person be putting in the ballot box? No, can this, so, so you know, that's the, so uh, uh, in these reports, actually, everything that the reporters have outlined are the facts that have made it, uh, that have reversed the actual verdict of the Georgian people from being pro-opposition to being pro-government. Now, what we are asking now the government is to pass the kind of reform where those kinds of fraudulent activities would not be possible. You know, to limit, for instance, somebody taking out the bulletins from the, from the precinct, to, uh, uh, to uh, pass the kind of legislative legislation which would uh, not make it possible for the government to have a majority in the electoral commissions, this kind of thing. Because then it will become impossible for them, for instance, to uh, amend the protocols as they did the next day. As I said, in 30% of the cases, we've had protocols amended only with the signature of the Georgian Dream Commission representatives. And so obviously all that created the, uh, the conviction, uh, we are, it's not, not just that we are convinced, the people are convinced that these elections do not represent the will of the people. So as I said, just to sum it up, there is no discrepancy between what we say and what the election observation missions say. You are correct in that they weren't, they didn't say they were completely free and fair, but there was some wording that said they were largely free and fair from some, but you're, you're correct. You know, no one said they were completely fair. You're, you're correct on that note. Well, competitive, no problem. Fundamental rights were respected. That's another thing that they say. And yes, fundamental rights were respected right. largely because yeah, we only had one or two politically motivated cases, which, by the way, set the tone for the whole campaign. But we did not have the cases where, uh, like it happens in Belarus, where seven opposition candidates right. were arrested the night before the elections. And they, so, so, yeah, so we're not there. But the things that they did were sufficient to reverse the verdict of the Georgian people. How difficult is it to run a country when none of the major opposition are in parliament? Like, how has that gone? I mean, what is it like to be in a country where... It's just a Georgian dream, you know, and none of the major parties are in parliament. Like what has, what, how does, how is, what's, what's that like? Well, that's what we're trying to uh, show to the rest of the world, but primarily to the Georgian dream, uh, people who are running the party, but running at the whim of, of the oligarch that 
having a one-party parliament in a European state is impossible. It's a you're basically uh, having a reality similar to Lukashenko's Belarus and uh, Kim Jong-un's North Korea, where it's just one party who rules uh, the country. And that's why what we've been arguing and what we've been uh, pushing for is more power sharing in the parliament, is closing this chapter of the political persecutions, where because somebody is your political opponent, you're going to arrest him or you're going to kick him out of the country or you're going to you know, limit his or her freedoms. So that that chapter is finalized once and for all. Now, the way you do it is that you have a free judiciary. The way you do it is that you let go of the prosecutor's uh, office. Uh, because, you know, Georgia is a European country. It is just like any other European state. It is poorer than most of the European states, obviously, because of the, uh, of the past that we have. But we've been on the right track for many years, particularly during the period when you were here, 2003, 2005, that's when all the major reforms uh, uh, have happened. But we've seen recently that trend being reversed. And that's very unfortunate because we've seen the economic decline, we've seen the deterioration of the freedoms. And and look, uh, uh, this kind of governance system, where it's a one man calling the shots, particularly the one who is the richest man, whose fortune is you know one third of Georgia's GDP. So you understand the the, the scale of the of the and then the magnitude of his wealth. And so when that person also has all the power concentrated in his hands, when he has effectively not maintained anybody around him who would oppose even the most craziest ideas that he would have. That's the kind of totalitarian mindset, a totalitarian system that has been in the making in Georgia. And we've seen how these things end in other countries. We've seen what happened in, in, in uh, Ukraine when Yanukovych tried to do the same thing, and then it ended up in Euromaidan. And we don't want those developments to happen. That's why we had high hopes in the European Union mediating this crisis. Georgia Dream refused to discuss any issue substantially. And so the now talks have collapsed, but we will continue to fight for our freedoms here and also to mobilize international community support. How concerned are you that the Kremlin will manipulate the crisis in Georgia? Well, it's a, it's a very direct question and I can give you a direct answer. Just a few uh, weeks ago, actually about a week ago, there was an official statement, and no, note this, official statement of the Russia's Foreign Intelligence Service. I think it's the first time they made the official statement on Georgia like that, where they said that, look, basically what they said is that they are supporting the government in Georgia. They see how the United States is helping the opposition here, and they are warning the United States to stop intervention into Georgia's domestic politics, because that is going to be interpreted as the intervention into the affairs of a sovereign state. So for, for, for Russia, the current government and the way they run the things is a very convenient partner because they they, they understand that they can find a, a common language with this guy. This is the guy, as I said, who made his fortune in Russia in the 1990s, you know, through all kinds of, you can imagine what kind of shady deals and, and, and activities there. So so for him, he's a... Yeah, they all did, by the way. For a lot of folks who don't know, the the, 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 the rocky night, the, the bloody 90s, um, as the union fell, you know, it fell in 91. Um, a lot of people made their money through very, you know, shady ways, you know, back in that day. But but go ahead. Yeah, so what I'm saying is he's a good partner for that, for, for, for Moscow. Now, uh, so for Russia, it will be important to maintain this uh, kind of government here. And Russia would be more than happy to see Georgia slide into uh, into more authoritarian state of affairs, obviously, because for Putin, the more authoritarian a state is, particularly in its neighborhood, the more convenient it is for him. It's the it's the 
worst nightmare of Putin to see the democracy strive in its near neighbor, because that would mean that, you know, he's doing something wrong. That's why he's been supporting uh, Belarus and Lukashenko. That's why he's been supporting Georgian dream in, in, in case of Georgia. No, no there, there are a lot of people here in the West would argue that the Georgian dream has done a very good job of keeping Russia at bay so that it will not be a Ukraine. So what's your response to that? I've heard about those opinions, but the, but the thing is that uh, Georgian Dream has conceded on a lot of uh, diplomatic and the other fronts, you know. Um, during the last 10 years, we've had the Russian occupying forces encroach on the rest of the Georgia's territory. This is what we call the uh, the creeping borderization, where because of the, we have the two Georgian territories occupied, South Ossetia and Abkhazia, and we've seen the barbed wire move deeper into Georgia's territory into you know several uh, several kilometers uh, and so uh, if they are able to deliver on the goals they have which is you know stop for the European Union and, and the United States being more active in this region getting more of our territories and actually having the government which does everything they tell them I mean they are happy with that status quo so uh, does that actually mean that the Georgian Greece government has been doing well uh, not really because in the last 10 years, we have not had any substantial progress, neither on the path towards European integration, nor on the path towards NATO. And in fact, the Georgian security has been uh, weakened, dramatic. You know, I'll give you an example from two years ago. In uh, June 2019, Georgian Dream invited here to Georgia one of the members of the Russian parliament, uh, an orthodox communist guy, who, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a weird combination, I know. Uh, they also know. <laughs> came to Georgia, Mr. Gavrilo, and he actually was allowed to preside in the chamber of Georgian parliament in the chair of the president of the parliament. What happened as a result was that people came out in the streets. We had several dozens of thousands of people storm the, the streets near the parliament because, it, because the population in Georgia is extremely pro-Western, pro-European, pro-United States. You know, we have pro-NATO. We have over 70% of the population who has that sentiment. And so when that happened, when, when the people saw how the Georgian dream has played this game, kind of inviting the Russian MP, who, by the way, was involved in the military activities in Abkhazia in the, in the, in the 1990s, there was a public wrath, public anger uh, that, that brought people out um, to, the, to the streets. So to go back to that uh, argument that, that you've uh, repeated that, that some people are saying, well, actually, Georgia Dream has not done a good job because they've given up on most vital interests to Russia. For instance, one of the vital interests of Georgia has been to build a significant deep sea port on the Black Sea, which would have connected Georgia to the rest of Europe and the rest of the world, you know, being uh, serving as a transit point for uh, uh, trade from China to Europe, which was a important geostrategic issue for us. What did the Georgian dream do? They torpedoed the building of that port. And now there is a very solid argument that the, the only country who was against that port was Russia, because they are building a competitor port also in, in the north of the Black Sea. So on every single major geopolitical issue where we could ever and should have resisted Russia, we didn't. Tell me about European Georgia. For folks who are not familiar with your party, what you stand for, uh, we would really like to know what your vision is for Georgia. We are the uh, center-right uh, liberal party, basically, uh, that stands for the uh, from the name you can also derive from a closer ties to the West, to, to the European Union, to the European integration uh, of Georgia, to the Europeanization of Georgia's economy. 
uh, but on the economic terms, we uh, stand for uh, small government, lower taxes, you know, less government interference into the economy and into the public affairs, as well as on the human rights, uh, we stand on the uh, protection of human rights, no discrimination based on whatever uh, uh, part uh, that, that is being used for the discrimination, whether it's ethnic, racial, religious, uh, sexual identity, etc. So we're a liberal center-right party, one of the opposition parties that was the second largest opposition party in the 2020 elections. Um, so we are one of the dynamic players on the opposition front uh, in the Georgian landscape. We, most of the people who are in European Georgia used to be in the government before 2012. You were with, yeah, you, you're, yeah, you were with the United National Movement. You, you split from them, am I correct? Split, so, so, so the major opposition party in Georgia is the United National Movement. They got 27% this uh, elections in 2020. We got 4%. So, uh, so, and we split from the UNM in 2017 and created a new party because of the disagreements with the UNM leadership and the former president, Mr. Saakashvili. So it was one of the major reasons. Uh, uh, and so, yeah, we are an in, uh, independent, pro-European, uh, small government, uh, lower taxes, uh, more freedoms kind of party. Tell me about 2003. I'm, I'm really interested in this because I was there because a lot of people should know the progress that Georgia has made, because I think you would agree that through the ups and downs, like it, it made immense progress. I remember 2003, just walking down uh, Roosevelt Avenue, you know, like how dimly lit that it was. I mean, like the crime was high, like you, and we were worried about pickpockets and all these folks, you know, just going down the main avenue. I mean, all Georgians were, you know, and Kutaisi was just known as a notorious area where, you know, like where you were running to folks. So like every city had like their name. I now remember that. And I remember going to Ajada, for example, um, you know, um, be before the Rose Revolution. And so in, in a few years, it turned to a completely different place. And it became this place where people from the West and even America were like, wow, I want to go to Georgia and try this food and climb the mountains. And it just became this cool place this cool new place for people to have some context about this country. I'm curious about even your own trajectory into politics. You know, like where were you in 2003 when the Rose Revolution was starting? And just take us from that point into now, you know, about the politics in Georgia and, and the ups and downs and the, and the improvements it's made. Yeah. Well, uh, Georgia effectively was after the breakup of the Soviet Union, uh, it engulfed into the uh, internal kind of crisis, economic. Uh, uh, we had the civil war in the early 90s, and then we had the two conflicts in Abkhazia and South Ossetia that were manufactured and kind of created by Russia. Then we had uh, uh, the 90s, which are kind of the dark 90s for us. And now in my memory also, I was a student uh, in 2003. Um, so when the Rose Revolution happened, and the whole 90s for me, uh, the kind of dark period where you would have the blackouts and no electricity. And, yeah, which means that the electricity has, has been switched off. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so uh, what happened in 2003 was that uh, the corrupt regime, which was running the country at the time, it was, it was uh, President Shevardnadze, who is probably more known for being the foreign minister of the Soviet Union at, at the end of the 80s, who was a prominent diplomat and the figure at that time and had a huge role in dismantling the Soviet Union and the reunification of Germany and all that. But he did a miserable jo job in Georgia. 
you know, under him, the corruption prospered and the economy went down to the ruins. But what happened in 2003 was that a lot of young people and, and some young politicians uh, from his party kind of uh, uh, in, in the 2003 November elections, they actually won the elections. And uh, at that time, Shevardnadze decided to rig the elections. And then there was a popular protest. People came out in the streets. I was also one of the demonstrators, just a regular demonstrator at that time, a student who was extremely unhappy with how the, with how the, uh, the, the public uh, decision to not elect Mr. Shevardnadze was completely disregarded, and he just wrote the numbers that left him in power. And so what happened was the revolution. And now uh, it was a rose revolution because it was a bloodless revolution. So another resigned, and then the new president, Mr. Saakashvili, was elected with a landslide. Yeah, before we get into that, though, I have a question for you. So when you were in the crowds, did you worry that Shevardnadze, and Shevardnadze, for everybody, you know, Edward Shevardnadze, he's the former president of Georgia. He's He died. Yes. I forgot what year. He's, he's no longer living. But, um, before years. But, before years. Yeah, four, yeah, four years. Yeah, and so... Were you concerned that the security forces were shooting to the crowd? Well, yes, there was a certain concern over that. But I think uh, we need to understand what kind of state it was. When I say it was a failed state, uh, it means that we also had this feeling that it was so dysfunctional. Even if given an order to actually shoot, we, were, we, we, were, we knew they wouldn't shoot. Really? Just to be, just to be uh, true towards history, Shevardnadze actually gave that order to use force. But, but, but the police did not, uh, and the military did not, because they knew that it was them, uh, a few, a small group of people going against the whole nation. That's why, that's why there was this sense of uh, being overwhelmingly victorious, even before actually he resigned, because it was a dysfunctional state. Now, we don't have a dysfunctional state anymore here. Let's, let's make uh, that very clear. We have other, other kinds of problems now, including authoritarianism, and all the problems with the democracy and that. But at that time, that was coupled with the dysfunctionality of the state apparatus, security forces, and all that. So, but what happened up to that was that we started at that time, and I was still was not in the government. I, I joined the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in 2004. Uh, and so what happened is that we did a fast track reforms in all fields, in, in, uh, in economy, in uh, security, in justice, public services, and all that. And that in, within the time period of five, six years brought Georgia uh, into what the, the World Bank called us the top top reformer of the world. We were actually number one reformer of the world. Yeah, you know, and that's another thing, too, because I remember, um, you know, Shaka Swidley, I'll tell you the thing that really helped. And look, we there are a whole, and I know you all split from the United National Movement, and so there are a lot of critiques to have about Shaka Swidley, but one thing that I... I, you know, when I'm in Georgia, one thing that every everyone I speak to, and you can respond to this, is that he had all of his faults, but his ability to find people and put them in the positions, you know, like he understood how to put good people in certain positions and operate. And two, he was a very charismatic person. And so he made you excited. And he, and he was, what, 35 or 36? He was 35. He was really young. And so he was kind of tall, like 6'2", something like that, 6'3". And he, when you see him talk to the West, he had this vision and he just made you think that, wow, I don't know where he's from, but at least when he speaks in the English, he sounds cool. And it's like, I really like, I want to go hang out with this person in wherever country he's from. And so he was a good salesman 
And because in America, I mean, we don't speak no Eng languages other than English, no way. You know, like, <laughs> he, I mean, seriously, that is seriously helped. I mean, it's unfortunate for my fellow Americans because we need to be speaking Russian and Georgian, whatever type of, you know, anything besides English. But that was an appealing thing, right? Because when you have these leaders that come from these former Soviet countries, in many instances, they're not speaking to you in English. That's true. You know, they, they aren't. And so for America... That was a thing, right? I mean, because Shevardnadze didn't speak, you know, I, I don't think he spoke English, but he didn't. It, it's a thing for us. And it was a big pool. And so he was, a, there was a way that Shaikashwili was able to woo folks in Washington and woo and also kind of distract them from the more strong arm ways that he would, you know, carry out some of these, you know, do, you know, carry out some of these reforms too, because they felt like as long as he's going westward, we'll just turn our eye if he seems to be strong arming a little bit too far, because there are a lot of people who said that he was very, um, you know, he was somebody who spoke about democracy, but, you know, he had his own issues with opposition and had That's his true. own, yeah, right? Had his own issues with opposition as well, yeah. And so, I mean, you were writing that, that he actually did manage to create this sense of hope in the country um, that, uh, uh, a lot of people who had no chance and no opportunity to contribute to the state building actually received the chance after the revolution. You know, people like myself, uh, we had no chance to join public service because it was also corrupt, underpaid and all that. And so people were leaving the country en masse and they, they were kind of doomed to, uh, to the poverty and, and, you know, finding some corrupt kind of ways to, to, to do some, some little things. But uh, he gave that opportunity, so he certainly did, uh, he did play a very important role there. And he also found a very good team who did all these good reforms that still were still basing the, the current public administration and, and what's happening here in economy, et cetera, on those reforms back in the day. Now, you're, uh, and one of the things he also did is that a lot of people with the Western education joined the government at that time. We had uh, probably the highest number of not just English speaking, I mean, Speaking English is not a problem here anymore. Uh, actually, I have students now who speak no Russian and they speak only English. So I'm like... Isn't that interesting though? Like, you know, when I'm... Because I speak Russian and I, I, I go to Georgia and if you're 30 and younger, like they're mostly speaking English and there are some instances where my Russian was yes. better than a lot of Georgians. I was kind of shocked by that. <laughs> I, have, I have two children, 13 and, and uh, 9, and uh, and uh, they speak fluent English, like literally fluent American English because of YouTube and all that. And my daughter, who is nine, does not speak any Russian. My son understands Russian. Uh, he can speak a bit, but it, it's, it's, not, it's nowhere near to his level of English. And this is a trend. And so what I was saying is that a lot of people like that have joined the government at that time. Now, Saakashvili had other problems. The problem was that later in his tenure, in the, in the second uh, term, he became overly authoritarian and started misusing uh, some of the power he had uh, himself as well as the other people around him. However, to his credit, I also need to say that when he lost elections, he gave the power away. So there are people who unjustly accused yeah, him of that's being true. a dictator and all that. I mean, dictators don't lose the election, you know. So he lost the elections and he peacefully transferred the power to the party who won the election, the current Georgian Dream Party. And so one thing, and he, once again, made a lot of mistakes. He had uh, people around him who thought, uh, the, had the sense of impunity, who, you know, he did crack down on the opposition once in a while, but also to his credit. And I'm not a fan of his, just to be very 
uh, clear on that because we speak from the UNM because no, of his role and personality and the current attitude. But at that time, to give credit to him, you know, what, what he did was that um, uh, he never arrested the opposition leader, unlike today. You know, there's not a single case in the 2003, 2009, uh, sorry, 2012 period when an opposition leader was put to, uh, put in jail. I mean, literally. Uh, and, and yes, one can argue that he was harsh on the opposition and all that. But yeah, he was winning elections one way or, the, or, or, or another with all the mistakes that he had. Unlike today, because today, after Mr. Ivanishvili came to power in the very first year, he uh, brought, he put either in prison or uh, for the questioning about 8,000 people that were serving at different levels of the previous government. 8,000, think about the number. And that is not just the party people. These are the people in the regions, like a, a lower official that he said, look, these people have been working for the UNM. He effectively cleansed the whole kind of uh, public administration from people that he thought were loyal to the previous government. And he has arrested the former prime minister. Mr. Kasakashvili is unable to return because there's a criminal case against him, former defense minister. And there's a, the number of people who've been arrested is, is very long. And the last one just happened a few weeks ago. So that's an ongoing story. That's why we had a bumpy ride from 2003 to 2012, a lot of good things happening, reforms, problems with the authoritarian kind of attitudes. But the, the magnitude of this authoritarian has increased dramatically in the last 10 years. And that's why we're uh, countering now Mr. Ivanishvili. Right. So tell me, what are your next steps? Because... These talks broke down. Are you looking forward to Washington coming in and intervening? Do you think that officials from D.C. will be able to sway the negotiations in ways that your European partners can't? Well, I think uh, 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 for Washington to step up is extremely important. Um, after the transition of power also in Washington, uh, not a lot of... Uh, so the, so the important uh, positions in the State Department have not been filled yet. So that also that always creates the vacuum uh, when the people who are responsible for the region and work on the region are not in their positions yet. So that is that is in the process, as I understand, and we hope that these people will pay closer attention to Georgia. U.S. ambassador here on the ground has been extremely active, also taking part in these negotiations. But uh, as I said, Georgia Dream just said no to all the proposals, any proposal is on the table. So yes. More active American involvement is, is extremely important, and we're that, that's one area on which we're working and, and pushing our partners in Washington. Uh, same goes also for the continuation of the EU effort, because uh, the two don't actually contradict each other. They are quite complementary to each other. And that's on the foreign front. But uh, locally, domestically here, we will have uh, a number of demonstrations. Uh, we will have the increased pressure on the government to yield. Uh, and I think uh, at a certain point, they will have to understand that Either they continue down the path that they'll be going down, uh, which is the kind of the Lukashenko Belarus path, and and that is contradicting the attitude of the majority of the Georgian population. Do you really believe that the Georgian dream has it in them to go down a Lukashenko track? Because that sounds extreme. Well, Georgian dream. When you say that, Mr. Ivanishvili, yes, for sure. Because in Georgia, so the Georgian dream is a, is a, is a people is a loose uh, connection of people. Uh, who are only loyal to Mr. Ivanishvili. Now, he has now chosen the team based on the criterion of loyalty, nothing else. And so they would basically, just to give you an example so that you don't think I'm just exaggerating, the current prime minister used to be the former personal assistant to Mr. Ivanishvili. The current health minister used to be the former 
donkeys to the wife of Mr. Ivanishvili. Uh, the current uh, career minister used to be his uh, security detail. Current security minister used to be his personal security detail. Just to give you an idea who runs the country right now. So when you say, can the Georgian dream go down that path? It's not actually the people in the Georgian dream who would do that, but Mr. Ivanishvili, who, as long as he sees the process as a zero sum, where if he concedes or anything, he loses everything, he will have no other choice. That's why, that's what we're warning our European friends and American friends of, that this path is inevitably leading to where Lukashenko has brought Belarus. Because simply in, on this path, you cannot sustain the free media, you cannot sustain the opposition. The only way to counter it is to either rig the elections or to arrest the opposition leaders or to shut down the free media, because otherwise you're doomed to lose. And if you think that losing means losing everything, you know, that's the only kind of modus operandi in which you will be able to function. Unfortunately, that's where we have found ourselves. Would you, would, would European Georgia consider a coalition government with the other opposition parties? Yes, absolutely. That's been, that was one of the issues uh, on which we campaigned. Uh, so yes, I think that uh, the future, Georgia now has the, uh, uh, proportional electoral system. By the way, one thing that we managed to get as a concession from the government a few years ago when they did the constitutional change, but that fully proportional system only enters into force in 2024. Uh, their last elections were held in a semi-proportional way. And the proportional elections effectively means that you're doomed to have coalition governments unless somebody gets more than 50%. And we've had this trend recently that nobody is able to get 50%. So you have to work with the other parties to form the functioning coalition government. I think that's a good way to uh, cure, in a way, this authoritarianism in the country. But what we have now as a problem is that in these remaining three, four years, three years, if the Georgian dream pursues that line, which they've been doing so far, in three years, we might not have any, democra any democracy here on the ground. So go back to your question. Yes, the coalition governments, coalition building, uh, joint programs with the other pro-Western-minded opposition parties who are not in bed with the oligarch is the formula that we support. Tell me about your confidence that Georgia will be NATO-ready in the near future because some reservations are because of Russia's presence in Abkhazia, especially, right? And we're aware of South Ossetia, and there are some concerns of bringing in a country that have these conflicts inside of its borders, because the doctrine states that if you attack one of us, you attack us all. How, concern, how concerned are you about those dynamics in Georgia as the country is working towards NATO? It's a very good question. Well, first of all, when it comes to the membership of uh, the NATO and whether a country is ready or not, there are three criteria that need to be considered. One is the military readiness and interoperability of the forces. And I think on that one, we already have a check because it has been widely assessed as already interoperable and already con consistent with the, with the NATO standards. So that's not a problem. The other one is the democracy. And that's where the biggest questions are right now. But having solve the issues and the problems with democracy, which I hope will happen in the in the near future, then the issue that you raised remains, which is the issue of the Russian occupation of the Georgia's region, of the Georgia's two regions. I think there is a very simple creative solution to that. 
which is that also based on the previous practice that NATO had towards the other member states, like for instance, West Germany back in the day, which is basically saying that Article 5 of NATO, which is the clause that you mentioned, that is, if you attack one member, then you attack the rest. Uh, the Article 5 does not apply to the whole territory of Georgia. It only applies to the unoccupied parts of Georgia. At the same time, recognizing international recognized borders of Georgia, saying that Georgia for us is with Abkhazia and South Ossetia. It's just that we're having a temporary clause that because of the Russian occupation, we will not enter the war with Russia because of that. Simply at this point, it does not apply to those two regions. That's a very simple solution. A solution which, as I said, has been used uh, uh, in uh, the case of West Germany. When West Germany joined NATO uh, back in the 1950s, you know, they considered East Germany as the part of Germany. But nonetheless, NATO said that, look, we're taking in West Germany, but it does not mean we're entering into the conflict with the Soviet Union. And, and, and mind you, back in the day, uh, the, 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 the West-East German confrontation was a lot hotter than it is now in Abkhazia and South Ossetia. So, so that's not a problem as long as there is a political decision on that issue. Now, I think uh, another aspect of that is uh, what should we do? I think we should be ready for the window of opportunity. Because for Moscow, uh, also the Baltic states membership of NATO was not uh, acceptable. It was a no-go. The Eastern European membership of the NATO was a no-go as well. So any country from the Warsaw Pact joining the NATO, whether it's Hungary, Poland, Czech Republic, Bulgaria, for the Bulgaria was considered to be like part of Russia, like you know the nearest. There was a joke that uh, Bulgaria is not a country, just like uh, the. The chicken is not a uh, is, is not a. What's the joke in Georgian or Russian? It's in Russian. It is kuritsa nipitsa Bulgaria ni zagranitsa. It sounds funnier in Russian. Okay, it, it... and for so same goes for the Baltic states, right? But what happened is that when when there was a window of opportunity, these states used the, this window of opportunity and they managed to join NATO. Now since then, and also join the European Union, right? And since then, they've been extremely secure. The borders have been secure. Russia's encroachment has been. Uh, stopped because then the, Russia will never be in the position to do anything with NATO. There's no chance of that. No chance. And so we need to be ready. We need to have the creative solutions on the table. And when there is an opportunity for us, and there will be opportunity, I don't think Mr. Putin will be uh, there for another 150 years, you know, unless he finds some. Yeah, boom. Yeah, exactly. So my, my last question to you is um, how concerned should Washington be about? this crisis that's going on in Georgia, because I don't think that many of us in America and people who follow foreign affairs or this region really appreciate the geopolitical significance of Georgia. So do you mind explaining um, Georgia's geopolitical positioning and why why folks in Washington really need to pay attention? Yeah, there will probably be three major reasons for that. One is that Georgia in this region, which is a very turbulent region and also a very important region for the U.S. interests, is uh, probably one of the staunchest allies of the United States and NATO, uh, not only because of the public support uh, uh, for the U.S. and the European Union, but also for our um, um, participation in a number of U.S. initiatives, whether it was the, uh, Iraq or whether it was Afghanistan, etc. We have been for many years the highest contributors to this uh, coalition-led efforts there. And once again, this will be a discussion whether this war was good or bad or whatever it was. It was the U.S. Uh, it was the U.S. Uh, initiative, their interest, and we were supporters there. So that's one thing. The other one is that it's the strategic location of Georgia uh, for the 
transfer of the hydrocarbons, uh, uh, which is the, the carb, uh, which, which is the uh, oil and gas from uh, Greater Middle East uh, and Central Asia to Europe, which is also an important, also strategically for the, uh, the West and for the United States and Europe. And the third one is that Georgia has been the showcase of uh, how a post-Soviet state can become a democracy. And not only become a democracy, but also how we can embrace the Western liberal values and then build the state out of a failed state. And so now there is a danger that this will go back to uh, ruins. And, and it also has the wider implication because if that actually happens, the Russian model, which we all know is that the more unstable the countries in the region are, the better it is for Russia, that model will uh, become dominant, so to say. And so. For Russia, if they see that they managed to do this in Georgia, they have managed to maintain Syria under their uh, you know, arms, uh, they managed to maintain uh, Lukashenko uh, in power, they will go further than that. It's not gonna stop with these countries only. And so what happened in Ukraine when that uh, Yanukovych pro-Russian drive was stopped by the Ukrainian people, I think the similar thing will happen in Georgia, but we don't want it to get to that point. Because unlike uh, uh, Ukraine of that time, where population was split 50-50, it was 50% pro-Russian, 50% pro-Western, uh, so to say, and, and Yanukovych tried to manipulate with that, and, and he blew up, he burnt his hands on that manipulation. In Georgia, we have a completely different um, uh, field. Here we have 80% pro-European and only maybe 10% pro-Russian. You know? And so that's why intervention and diplomatic effort and pressure, whether it's the pressure with the personal sanction threat or whether it's a more robust conditionality towards the Georgian government and Mr. Ivanishvili, the oligarch, here the pressure will work. Listen, Sergey, thank you so much for coming on the show. Georgia is very dear to my heart. I've known about the country since 2003 and I try to visit every year and uh, when I'm in Tbilisi next time, I'd love to meet up with you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. And so I'm I'm actually writing a feature for Foreign Policy Magazine about what's going on. And so I always enjoy taking time to explain to my viewers and also to my colleagues. I'm a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. Good. Uh, there are not a lot of people who focus on Georgia. And I think that countries like Georgia and Ukraine deserve their own group of people who devote time to it because, you know, it's clearly different from, it's, it's, it should be clear to everyone that it's a vastly different country from Russia and its own culture and its own traditions and deserves its own individual conversations. And I'm happy that you took time out of your Saturday because you're eight hours ahead of me in New York City to talk about this important issue. I'm, thank you so much. Thank you for inviting and let's keep in touch. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Black Diplomats. Please support us by going to Apple iTunes or your favorite podcast platform and give us a five-star rating. Also, we love giving you great interviews each week, but running and growing a podcast isn't cheap. So please go to Patreon, find us under Black Diplomats, and support us with whatever you can. Thank you again for joining us and talk to you next week.